0: I want to thank the choir for such, um, such a nice, such a beautiful, such a really perfect lead in to our passage this morning. I also want to thank Patrick for helping me. I think this is the first time I've preached since we brought back the children's sermon and, um... So it's nice to not have to pull double duty on that. I think I'm maybe a little bit better outfitted for one than the other. And so I appreciate uh, all this help up here this morning. Um, We come this morning to a passage that nears the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So I get to preach what's essentially nearing the end of the narrative, nearing the end of the story... And we'll see as we move that there is a story, as there so often is, that sits on top of the story that Luke has been telling. And as we near the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, we'll try to bring that out this morning. So if you'll open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9, our passage this morning is verses 23 through 27. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it Dear Heavenly Father, in these short verses, as Jesus speaks to His disciples, as He picks up where He has left off, telling of the necessity of His death. Lord, would You help us to see the beauty of Your redemption here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On February twenty-sixth, two 2011... The Reverend John Piper tweeted something that rather quickly echoed across the church in America. I remember it well. I caught my attention when I saw it in real time. His smiling little avatar over here on the left and his piercing quip over here on the right. John Piper's tweet was only three words. And it said, Farewell, Rob Bell. For those of you who may not know, Rob Bell had been a megachurch pastor up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He had been called by some, the coolest evangelical pastor of the time. He'd been called by others, the next Billy Graham. Bell had written a couple of books up to that point, each pushing the envelope just a little. That was his style. He ruffled people's feathers. He tried to break them out of their norms. Then came Bell's next book, called... Love wins, in which Bell responded to the very orthodox, very biblically sound truth that if you are not in Christ, you will suffer eternal torment in hell. Bell didn't like that. He didn't see it lining up with his idea of a loving Jesus. And so denying the need for Christ's atoning work on the cross, denying the eternal punishment of hell, he drifted into universalism, the true opium of the masses of our day. He essentially said, be a good person. You'll be okay in the end. A few months later, Bell stepped down from his role as pastor of his megachurch in Michigan. But curiously, he said it was so that he could share his message of God's love with a broader audience. I say curious because the language is very important. Bell now sought to share his message of God's love and conveniently to do so without the oversight of a session of a church. In the 10 years that have passed since Bell has rather predictably gone on to write several numerous best-selling books, moved to LA, started a podcast, had a book promoted on the cover of Time magazine, he's been on Oprah numerous times, even lo- launched his own show on her network. Indeed, Rob Bell has very much fulfilled his stated goal when he left his church ten years ago. He has very much shared his message of God's love with a broader audience. The problem is, his, his message of God's love doesn't really matter, right, if it's not the Bible's message of God's love. It may make his hearers or his readers feel good about themselves for a moment or for a season But truth remains truth, no matter how hard we may try to deny it, no matter even if in our denial we gain the world along the way. So as we turn to our passage this morning, I want us to do so from an important context. In the past several passages that we've been studying Luke's been telling us a narrative, a story that is essentially progressing along the top of the individual stories that we've been considering, such that when we come to this important section today, sandwiched in between the feeding of the 5,000 that we considered last week and the transfiguration that we'll study next week, we're at an extremely important point near the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So before we jump into verse 23, before... I walk us through that overarching narrative of redemption that Luke's been telling before we consider what it means to deny yourself and to take up your cross. I want us to understand how foundational Christ's words are here to humanity. There's no one in this sanctuary for whom these verses don't apply. And so to set that context, we're going to begin in a passage you all know well. The context for our passage this morning is the temptation in the garden. If you've been attending any of the creation of chaos Sunday school classes, then this is very fresh for you. And if you're not attending any Sunday school class, I'd encourage you to consider it. These are foundational truths that help us to understand the rest of Scripture. You remember well in Genesis 3, the Satan came and tempted Eve. And what does Satan say will happen if she eats of the tree? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise, she ate and gave some to her husband. And their eyes were opened. They were naked, and so they covered themselves. And when they heard the Lord God walking in the garden... They hid amongst the very trees of their blessing. This passage is so dense with meaning. And we see time and again Eve's temptation. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the lust of pride come up time and again throughout Scripture. One thing that we often overlook is when Satan says that if they eat, they will know good and evil The Hebrew there actually carries with it the sense not just that they will be able to understand what God has previously called good and evil, but rather that they will be able to choose for themselves henceforth what is good and what is evil. You see, that's the crux of our rebellion. We seek not just to disobey God like Satan before us. We seek to be God ourselves And if we read on in the story, perhaps it's a little too close to home. But what happens next? The very first thing that Adam and Eve do after their eyes are open, the very first thing that they declare on their own to be good is to hide themselves from one another and to hide themselves from God. Why must we confess our sins? Because He is faithful and just to forgive us. And because it is the exact opposite of what our gut says to do. You see, from Genesis 3 on, two worlds now exist, and no man can obey two masters. Forever after, mankind is either of this world, the seed of the serpent, or of Christ, the seed of the woman. There are no other categories, there are no other teams, there is no neutral position, and there is enmity in between. It doesn't take us long to see that, right? The first person to die in all of Scripture does not die of natural causes, just being a good person, living off the land, being spiritual but not particularly religious. No, the first person to die in all of Scripture died at the murderous hands of his brother. Why? Because the seed of the serpent was trying to kill off the seed of the woman to keep God's prophetic word from coming true. There are only two sides... and the seed of the serpent... is not idle. Verse 23... And he said to all... if anyone would come after me... let him deny himself... and take up his cross... daily... and follow me. Jesus gives the people... three imperative commands here. If you would come after me... you must deny yourself... take up your cross... And follow me. The three verbs are all given with equal weight, and therefore they all equally form how it is that we come after Christ. Looking at them individually, then, what does it mean to deny yourself? What exactly are you denying? Well, at its core, you're denying the very thing Adam and Eve lusted after, the very thing that they asserted, the very thing you and I hold near and dear to our hearts, even this morning. You're denying your control over your life. You're humbling yourself before your maker. You're fleeing from your sin, and you're resting in the work of Christ. You're acknowledging, thankfully acknowledging, that you are an image bearer, but you are not the original. Next we come to a phrase we know well, but I'm afraid we commonly misunderstand. Christ tells His disciples that if a man would follow Him, he must take up his cross daily. Notice it's not just a command to take up your cross, it's modified by the word daily. So that tells us first we must take up our cross continuously, but it also tells us that the temptation to not take up our cross is continuous as well. So what in the world does it mean to take up your cross? When I said this is commonly misunderstood, it's because we frequently turn this verse in on ourselves, which is what we often do when we misinterpret passages of Scripture, right? We we, we tend to contort them in such a way that we become the hero. But it's important that we see Jesus is not telling his disciples that they are going to encounter things in life that they're just going to struggle with, and those will be the crosses that they have to bear. What Jesus is saying here is that in order to come after him, in order to join him, you must die to yourself. The cross was not a challenging struggle in life, The cross was death. You didn't come down from a cross at the end of the day and say, well, that was a rough afternoon. You took up your cross knowing that you would never again be separated from it. In order to come after Christ, you must die to yourself. You must die to your sin. You must die to your flesh, to your eyes, to your pride in order that you can be wholly reborn in Christ. Third command is to follow Christ. Incidentally, you, you, you really can't do this unless you've denied yourself, if, if you've not died to yourself, because you won't be in Christ. you'll be in the world, even if you look the part. And I think following Christ can actually sound easy compared to the first two nowadays. And I say that because there's so many people in the world today who absolutely believe they are following Jesus, yet they've never confessed their sin. They've never sought His redemption because they don't realize they even need it. These are the people who think being a Christian is all about being good. Whatever that even means. But we know Being a Christian is actually far more about realizing you're not. Incidentally, I think the strongest rebuke I've ever received at work was when I made the comment that Cole, as a toddler, was a sinner. My colleague came unglued that I would think such a thing of my son. Mind you, I just told her a story about Cole literally starting a fight on his own on the playground at school. But we all think we're good. See, if you don't deny yourself, if you don't die to yourself, you cannot follow Jesus. You'll merely be following a caricature of a Jesus that you've made up in your head. And that caricature is probably going to look a whole lot more like you than it does the real thing. So how do we do it? You notice that our three commands in verse 23 are followed by three consecutive statements that work to ground the truth that we've just read in verse 23. Let's look at verse 24 through 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. In a way, these three statements parallel our three commands of verse 23. And we see also... The three major elements of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden mirrored in these examples. For whoever would save his life, the lust of the flesh will lose it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, the lust of the eyes, if he forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the lust of pride, so then will I be ashamed of him when I come in glory. These sins or, or paradigms for sin occur over and over and over in Scripture. They were the temptation in the garden. They were the temptation of Israel in the wilderness. They were outlined for us in 1 John 2.15-17 when John cautions us not to fall in love with this world. And they were the temptation Satan levied against our Lord after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. They are the siren song of this world. The ever-present call to return to our sin. The reminder of our longing to be our own God. About nine years ago, on Juliet's first day of pre-K-3, I remember sitting in a dark room next to Tara. Neither one of us could take her to school that day because we were at the hospital. And Tara was having an emergency image taken of her gut. We didn't know what was wrong, but the night before had been excruciating, and the options on the table were fairly serious. So I sat beside her bed and prayed, as so I sat beside her and read Psalm 139, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, I can tell you without hesitation that I most certainly did not want to be God that morning. The limitations of what I could do were very clear. I brought her to the hospital. I very much wanted there to be a God hearing my prayers who had the authority to answer them. You See, I want to be God when I feel temptation of sin calling for me when I feel compelled to unbridle my tongue in careless gossip, when I feel like putting my own frustration with others ahead of Christ's clear message of grace and redemption to them that they need, when I feel ashamed of who my Savior is before the world I seek to gain. Notice at the end of verse 26, though, Jesus gives us a hint of something much, much bigger than the tiny world we seek to be God over. He tells his disciples that if they are ashamed of him, ashamed of proclaiming him, proud of themselves rather than proud of their Christ and his word, then so too will he be ashamed of them, and don't miss it, when he comes in his glory And it's in this hint of Christ's second coming that he begins to drive home the end to which he's been pointing throughout his entire ministry in Galilee. Turn back with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 8, looking at verse 22. I want you to walk with me now as we trace the story of redemption that Luke has elegantly woven in to his gospel narrative, the the mosaic-like picture that he's painted to set up this moment. You recall in Luke 8, verse 22, Tanner preached through the story of Jesus calming the storm. And we heard echoes of the Jonah story, but we also saw saw Jesus begin to emerge as uh, what Christ was doing in the Jewish world was something that only Yahweh could do. This Jesus could calm the chaos of the waters, could rebuke the wind and the raging waves. This Jesus stood over creation itself as Lord. And then as they sailed to the other side of the sea, they come upon the man consumed by legion. Thousands of demons. No doubt one demon would have been enough, but Satan cast thousands upon this man because he knew the time for battle was now the seed of the woman had come and as Jesus shows compassion upon this man he shows authority over the demons casting them not yet into the abyss into the abyss but for now by way of the swine into the lake Christ has authority over creation Christ has authority over the demons And next we come to the juxtaposed stories of the woman with the discharge and Jairus' daughter, the the daughter of Jairus being 12 years old and the woman that Jesus would call daughter having bled for 12 years long. It's not a coincidence. Both of these females were dying. The woman symbolically through the loss of blood. The little girl in reality due to sickness. But rather than being made unclean himself, Christ makes clean that which is unclean. Christ makes alive that which is dead. Christ has authority over creation. Christ has authority over demons. Christ has authority over death. And upon raising the little girl, Luke says that her spirit returned to her body as yours and mine will at our resurrection. And Luke commanded that food be brought for this resurrected girl to now eat in the presence of her Savior. Jesus then calls the twelve together. And at the beginning of chapter 9, Luke tells us that he gave them authority over demons and diseases and tells them to go out, proclaiming the kingdom of God. But in their going, he tells them that if they are rejected, they are to shake the dust from their feet as a testimony against those who reject them, for there are only two groups of people. And the seed of the serpent is not idle. And then, as Tanner preached, the two passages, verses 9, uh, 7 through 9 and, and 18 through 20 of chapter 9 of Luke. These passages that sit bordering on either side of the feeding of 5,000. Two passages pondering who exactly this Jesus is. And we see in one passage, Herod is perplexed by Jesus but is defiant. While in the other passage, we see Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ of God. There are two people, there are two groups of people. Herod seeks to rule as man, and Peter seeks to rest in the rule of Christ. And the feeding of the 5,000 gives rich time for application. But sitting on top of this story is the clear picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the Messianic banquet when the kingdom of God is consummated and God's elect have been made new in our resurrected bodies, but for that consummation to occur, the Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected by the leaders of this world, be killed and raised up again. And thus we come to our passage here this morning on taking up our cross and following Christ. But all of that Begs one exceedingly important question. When Jesus says follow me. What exactly are we following him to? Let's look at verse 27. But I tell you truly. There are some standing here. Who will not taste death. Until they see. The kingdom of God. Christ was always driving to this end. The kingdom of God. Why is it so important then for Luke to put this specific teaching right here in his narrative? Matthew and Mark capture similar words, but they place them elsewhere. Why does Luke choose to place this? After telling of the Messianic banquet. Framed by the confusion of Herod and the confession of Peter. Why does Luke make it such a point to tell us to follow Jesus at this point in the story? Because coming next is the transfiguration. Coming next is the kingdom of God on display. Coming next, Moses will appear on the mountain alongside Christ in his glory. And the message Luke is telling is clear. The kingdom of God has come in Christ. And he is leading a second exodus. This is how you come after him. Incidentally, the irony that some will not taste death is sweet, right? Because that's precisely what Adam did. He tasted death when he ate the fruit. But by dying to ourselves, friends, we will pass through the coming fire of judgment with Christ at our head. There are only two sides. The seed of the serpent is not idle, but the seed of the woman is not idle either. He's a conquering king. What do you pursue? What do you long for? Is it money? Is it being liked or being popular? Is it always being right? Some of us struggle with admitting when we're wrong. If we can't do that, it's going to be very hard indeed to deny yourself, to die to yourself, and to humbly follow your Lord. What do you pursue? Is it the kingdom of God? Is it the kingdom of man? At our core, we want to be God. It underwrites our sin. It underwrites our rebellion. It's what Satan has tempted you to be since the beginning. Because if you believe that you are God, then you will not be of Christ. You will not be in Christ. And you will have lost a far greater kingdom than the one that you think you've gained. So we move to a close, we we'll go back to Genesis one final time. For those of you who studied the Tower of Babel in Sunday school this morning, it'll be very fresh. And hopefully the rest of you all remember the account. The Tower of Babel was in the land of Shinar and what would come to be settled by the mighty opponent of God, Nimrod. And later, would be called Babylon. A paradigm city of evil to God. The people had migrated from the east. They had coalesced in one land, speaking one tongue, and they had said to one another, Let us build a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. They sought to remake a world in their own image, and the Lord God saw that they sought to make a name for themselves rather than to make His name known throughout the land. And so He confused their speech, and He dispersed them. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in this entire passage of man trying to be like God, trying to make a name for himself, that not one person's name is actually recorded. It's the first story in all of Genesis where not one person's name is written down. The genealogy of Noah's son Shem comes right before and right after the Tower of Babel narrative The word Shem literally means name. And then, of course, we come next to Abram's call where God says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And yet all these name builders are remembered for as their folly and their pride. But there's another scene in Genesis that you also likely know well. However, this time, rather than a man building a tower to reach God in the heavens. This time, a man takes a stone in the city of Luz and lays down to sleep for the night. And the man Jacob dreamed a dream of a ladder, a stairway, set up on the earth and the top of it reached the heavens. And the angels were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and affirmed his covenant now with Jacob. Jacob, whom the Lord would give a new name, the name Israel, through whom the whole world would be blessed. You see, we don't go up to make our name defiantly before God. It's God who comes down to put his name upon us, to tell us, This is how you come after me, for I have put my name upon you. Do you see it? Do you feel your sin? Do you realize that you cannot build a tower to God? Do you realize that being born in Adam is to be born in sin, even if you're a relatively good person by the world's standards? Do you realize that the Christ came and died so that you would not have to face eternal judgment for that sin? Confess your sin and rest in that redemption. For there are only two sides. And despite what Rob Bell and so many others wish to believe, judgment will come when the King appears again. For the seed of the woman is not idle. Follow him. And he will lead you through the judgment. Will lead you cloaked in his righteousness. On a second exodus. Into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father how hard it can be hard it can be to die to ourselves even once, much less to do so daily. What a reminder that is of our sin and of our need for a Savior. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you have come, that Christ has put his name upon us, that we may follow him through As the Hebrews followed Moses with Christ at the head in the first exodus, may we now follow you in the second. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the blessing of our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.